So about four years ago, I retired as a basketball coach. Um, swore I'd never do it again. I uh, I'd coached three different seasons, two two seasons with my daughter's teams. They were delight. Um, some of you know where this is going, but they they listened. They they worked hard. They were fun. They were great. Okay, and then my son wanted to play, and wanted me to coach his team. So I decided to do that. Terrible idea. Um, although I actually did enjoy hanging out with my son, but the nine other boys—no, actually not all nine—five of the other boys, um, they were rough. I mean, they half of the kids didn't hadn't, hadn't played before, which wasn't the problem, but. Uh, they just, they didn't listen, they, they goofed off, they were hard to coach. In fact, so, so, several times parents that were sitting in the, like, the stands just kind of waiting for breakfast to be over, like, would feel so bad for me, they would come and help me. That's how bad it was. One, one dad was like, yeah, I just can't sit and watch this anymore, so I'm going to, whatever you need me to do, I'll do. I mean, everybody was just like, oh my goodness. Um, and so I got done, and I swore I'd never do it again. But... There was one silver lining. One, one thing that made the whole season worth it was meeting this young man. And I'm going to try not to say his name. but, but So this, this young man, I got to know, he, um, he showed up for practice one day. He, man, he was, he'd never played before, but he was a delight to coach. He, was, he smiled every time he was on the court. Anytime we asked him to do something, he would try to do it. Um, he wasn't very good at all but he was a delight to be around to coach. And so I got to know him a little bit, took him home a couple times, picked him up for games a few times, found out a little more about his situation. He lived with his grandma, who was her, his, um, his guardian. And she's, she's a great woman, and she's, she's got some health issues, and she's disabled, and she can't drive, so it makes it kind of complicated. Uh, his, his, uh, he's got a sister who's a couple years younger, He's got a brother who's several years younger, and uh, and I just kind of fell in love with this this kid and this family, and and he came over to spend the night a couple times, and um, and then I, I picked him up for Easter that year, and brought him to church a, a few times. Whenever I wasn't um, teaching on a Sunday morning, I would I would go pick them up because again they, they they didn't have a ride or whatever, so I would go pick them up, bring him to church, and they seemed to love it, and eventually they kind of. They, they found a mutual friend that they knew that was interested in going to church and found a ride and started coming on a regular basis. It was great. Um, since then, they've, they've had, she's had lots of different health issues and surgeries and has been, had a hard time. Uh, his, uh, their mom, the kid's mom, is in and out of their life, um, chooses men over them all the time, lots of bad decisions uh, in their life and, and that have caused a lot of pain in their life. Really, really difficult life, but they have a, they have a grandma and a great grandma who are actually pretty solid and love them and are doing their best to love these kids. Um, but about three years ago, I, I, don't, I don't have typically any, any responsibilities on Wednesday nights for Wednesday night church. And I thought, well, hey, I'll, I can at least do that every week. I can't do every Sunday, but I can do every week, every Wednesday. So I, I started picking them up on Sunday. And then they wanted to start inviting some friends. And I actually recruited, I saw them earlier, Tuck, yeah, Tucker and Kate Lee. Um, help me out. Their freshman year, they we, we they started inviting so many friends that it, that we outgrew my minivan. We had to get a church van, so I would pick. They would meet me at the church. We would hop in a church van. We would go pick them up. We would take their seven, sometimes eight friends, or not friends, but total seven kids, seven or eight kids. And man, it was like you guys just sit back there, keep an eye on things, and try to like I don't know, talk to them or something. Um, but bringing them to church and they would, they were loving it, but they, they would say some of the funniest things. Okay. So fast forward, we've been doing this now for several years and now it's just, they've moved, moved several times. And so some of the friends that were going have not been going, but on Wednesdays I picked them up and now we pick up one of their cousins. So I picked, so funniest thing that happened, funniest thing they said to date, um, was two Wednesdays ago. So I have a, an eight ball in my car. So those of you who decided to memorize Romans 8, the reward was if you memorized it, you got an 8-ball, right? So uh, Chase got an 8-ball, I got an 8-ball, a couple others. 
got an eight ball, right, for memorizing. So I keep it in my car just to kind of remind me. Every time I'm driving, I see that, and, and it kind of helps me remember to recite it or whatever. So I pick the three, the three up. So at this time, there are 13. Say the oldest is 13. No, 14. 12. The girl is 12. And then the boy is 7. Okay? So 13-year-old sitting in the pastor seat. The 12-year-old and the 7-year-old sitting in the back seat. And we're driving. We're stopped at Lake at uh, Perkins and 51, heading south to pick up their cousin. And I, I picked up the 8-ball. And I'm like, hey, do you guys know what this is and why I have it? And the 13-year-old just looked at me like, I said, I memorized all of Romans 8. And he's like, okay. I mean, just staring at me like, I don't know what you want me to say, but I don't even know what that means, but okay. And so I was explaining, it's like 39 verses, and I memorized all of them. I got this eight ball. Isn't that cool? He's like, yeah. And so it didn't say a word, right? He's got head, earphones in, headphones in. Five seconds later, from the back, the youngest boy, Nobody cares. <laughs> I prompt. And I was like, he can't be talking to me. And I look back, and he's laughing and looking at me. I'm like, are you, did you just? And, I, and he's like laughing, so I'm reaching back to try to tickle his leg, and he's moving his leg, and nobody cares. Um, man, they say stuff, stuff like that all the time. Um, they also... They also say it's like really hard things to hear. It, it, it gives you an idea about their environment, right? So the oldest talks about how his dad doesn't care about him and won't send him child support. And he needs child support in order to have a phone, in order to do these things. And, and it's all because his dad doesn't love him. He wishes he had a dad that loved him. Um, the, the girl, they all have different dads. The girl, um, her dad was murdered like, five or six years ago, a couple years before I met them. And so that comes up once in a while. Yeah, my dad was killed, or, you know, my dad's in heaven because he was murdered. Or, And then the, the youngest boy has been in and out of trouble. He's, he's got some disciplinary issues. He's, he's tried to hurt himself with a, a kitchen knife um, in the last year. So, like, these, the, the things they talk about, and, and Caitlin Tucker have witnessed this, almost every time... I pass by a police officer when I'm driving with them, the, the two youngest especially. Quick, hide! Like, Scott, don't let him get us. Right? Because the environment that they live in, they've been, they've been told that cops are bad and they're, they're evil and they're out to get them and you should run and, and not, not be around them. And, um, and so, you know, their, their environment is teaching them something about authority and I can't help but think that that's somewhat true of us too. Like that, that the environment that we live in and, and it's kind of the air that we breathe um, teaches us something about the authority, about authority specifically, that I think hinders us from understanding the God of the Bible. In fact, the God of the Bible um, doesn't seem to care as much about our individual rights as we do. And that's hard for us as Americans to hear. If you heard me a couple weeks ago talk about our rights, that's something that's a really big deal for us and for America, and there's a lot of good that comes with that. But when you read through the Bible, it just seems like um, individual rights aren't as big of a priority to God as holistic rights and as um, big things. And and. And God says different things like you are made in my image, that you have value and um, dignity because of who you are, because, of, because you're mine. And, but also reminds us all the time that we also sinfully choose ourselves all the time. That left to our own devices, we would destroy anything and everything that we care about, including ourselves. And so, so the Bible talks interestingly about God, His sovereignty, um, what he thinks about authority. And so when you have sections of Scripture like Jonah, which I don't know if many of you know this, Jonah is not the cute story that you probably learned about in um, Sunday school as a kid. Like, Jonah's a legit, interesting book. Jonah was called to go preach to Nineveh, who is this, the capital of this pagan city, pagan country, nation, Assyria. 
And because they were crazy, wicked people. They had a reputation for being some of the worst people that existed. They were the ones that invented crucifixion, all kinds of things that, that came out of Assyria. And, and the reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh wasn't because he wanted a vacation or because he just didn't like the people. It was because he knew that if, if he preached, a re, preached repentance to them, they would repent and God would be kind and accept their repentance and turn his wrath from them. And that's exactly what happened. And the end of the story, Jonah's pissed about it, about God being kind to these wicked people, the Ninevites. But the Assyrians go on to be the very same people who go in and capture Israel and send them into exile. So think about that. God sends a prophet to preach repentance to the very people who turn and go and enslave the Israelite people. And it's because after hundreds of years of rebellion and idolatry, the Israelite people kept over and over and over not choosing, not, not obeying. And so God, in His kindness, um, he, he sent another nation to enslave them so that they would repent and turn back to Him. That's the God of the Bible that we don't often talk about. Um, if you were here this past Sunday... You maybe heard something similar at, at Sunnybrook. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, you've probably all heard Jeremiah 29, 11, You know, for, for the plans. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. That comes in the context of all of Jeremiah 29. They're in exile. Okay, So Israelite people are enslaved to another group of people. And he says to them, um, get married, have jobs, um, work hard, um, care about the people. And, and, and help the good of the, the good of the city so that, so that you can live long and, and well in that city. So basically, um, you know, seek the well-being of the, very, of the very people who are enslaving you. That's the God of the Bible. And then we have texts like Isaiah 40, 23 and 24 that says that he reduces princes to nothing. He makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when He blows on them and they wither, and, and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. So the God of the Bible is, isn't afraid to use other nations to do His bidding, and then also says, yeah, and by the way, all the kings of the earth, all the rulers, they're at my bidding. I, I, I can do with, with them what I want. And so then that, that's the, the background Okay, in the context of when we come to a text like Romans 13, which is going to say that, that we need to submit to the governing authorities. It's going to say it very clearly. And it's going to bring up some big questions for us. So if you have your Bible, open up to Romans 12. And hopefully when you're done with today, nobody says, nobody cares. Please do not do that. I'm scarred. So, Drew accidentally taught the whole the rest of the chapter twelve yesterday last week. He wasn't supposed to. He was only he was only supposed to teach nine through I think twelve or thirteen. I apologize for being too much. Yes. Okay. Whatever. Don't don't even don't act like yeah. My biggest problem is I care too much. Um, whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Drew. So, but but I feel the need to kind of back up. He taught. He did a great great message on on love. I encourage you to go listen to it. But so, twelve nine starts with love. Okay, so he talks about love, and then look at thirteen eight. He goes back to love, and so right in the middle um, is kind of an interesting section where I think he talks through two different things, two different ways in which we love the world. And the first one is we love the world by blessing those who are against us. And so 12 through um, 19 kind of give that. So here's some, here's some ways he encourages them to show love. In 12, 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. In 12, 
17 through 19, he says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. So here he tells us, it's very clear, a way that we love the world is by blessing those who are against us. And then in 13.1, he tells us, um, he gives us a new command. Um, and, he, and he tells us a way in which we love the world by, by submitting to the authorities that govern us. And so I've asked Chase to come up and to read. Um, so I want you to listen to this. We're going to read, he's going to read um, Romans 13, 1 through 7. And I want you to kind of listen and pay attention. Go ahead. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one who is in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Okay, thank you. So he gives, he gives four theological reasons why we are to let everyone submit to the governing authorities. So think about that. Submit to the governing authorities. That, there's something about that that is kind of hard to hear, especially, especially today, and we'll get more into that later. But four theological reasons. First one is this, that God has established the authorities, that it's God who establishes them. The word instituted literally means, in the Greek, it means assign, order, arrange, put in place, put in order. And so the idea is that because God is sovereign, and because he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, um, that whoever is elected, whoever is chosen, and back then they didn't have the same kind of election process. It wasn't like a, a people's election. It was just whoever took the office. It was whoever killed the, the other guy and took, and took over. And so think about that. And, and that's the kind of culture that, that is, you know, this, bo- this book is being written to, this letter is being written to, and so you have a very different kind of political climate than we do, and yet we would consider ours to be terrible right now or, or really bad. Nothing compared to what they lived in. And he says, God, who, whoever is there, is there because God established them. So because he's sovereign, it's his will. That's the conclusion. The second thing, which is kind of a natural result of, result of believing the first one, is that to resist the established authority is to oppose God. Like, to resist the authority is to oppose God. Again, that, hard, that seems hard to hear. The third one is that, that the established authorities are God's servants for good. Now, well, let me say the next one. And then the, the established, the fourth one is the established authorities are God's servants for wrath. So, so they're God's servants for good, for our good, and they're God's servants of wrath. Um, now, I don't think he's saying every single authority that ever has existed, or that ever that exists, that their sole purpose, the reason they're in power, is for our good, and that that every single authority and every everyone that exists, that the reason 
that, that when they come down on somebody, it's because they deserved it. And that's not what he's saying, but ultimately what he's describing is governing authorities that God established as a, as a natural way of living. Like the, the general overarching purpose of it is for the good of the people and that their wrath is a, a servant of God's as well. Okay? Then he gives two practical reasons why we should submit to authority. The first one is the authority, by God's blessing, will punish those who do not obey them. So a very practical reason is, yeah, the reason you obey them is because when you don't, you'll get punished. You should obey them. Or you should, sorry, you should submit to them. Different, different than obey. Submit. Um, their job is to approve what is good and, not, and, and punish bad, is kind of what he's saying. Um, the second practical reason is that you should pay taxes. He said you, you, you pay taxes. You, you pay what you owe. And so um, this, this rings true of Jesus' words. That give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. And Jesus was asked this question. What do I do with this coin, Jesus? It has, and he says, whose face is on it? And it says Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? And so that's how Jesus answered this question. And I think Paul is just continuing that same idea that you, you pay taxes to whoever owe, you owe taxes to. And, and if the authority, the governing authority, has said this is how much you owe, that's what you pay. Now, let me give a little bit of background to taxes specifically and why Paul would, why would, Paul would even mention that. But so... So you remember at the beginning of this year, we, we talked about the, the uh, Claudius, Emperor Claudius, had kicked out all the Jews. And, and a big reason was because he thought they were causing problems, they were revolting, they, were, um, they were, weren't paying taxes, they weren't doing these things, they were, they were causing issues. And so he just was fed up, kicked them all out of Rome. And this church had already started. So you have, all, you have these Gentile Christians and you have Jewish Christians and then all the Gentiles... Well, the Jewish ones started the church because they learned it from Acts chapter 1. So, so then the Jews now leave and the Gentiles are now left in charge. And so and then five years later, the Jews come back and now there's like, wait a minute, we were in charge. And like, well, you've been gone and I took over. So now we're in charge. And so there was like some, some difficulty of like, who do we listen to? And should we, should we really follow the dietary laws that the Jews told us to? Or do we really have to do that? So they're trying to work all this out, and Paul writes to both of them. So you got this tension there, but a lot of it is, the history is, like we know that Claudius was ticked at the Jews because of the tax issue. And Christians were often lumped into that because they were, you're worshiping the same God, right? The same God of Abraham. So you're just as rebellious as the Jews. Um, also, there was, there was these different... Um, different rebellions that kind of popped up by leaders that would kind of ensue the people. Listen, don't, don't pay the taxes. Don't surrender your, your goods to, to Rome, to Caesar. And so there was those kinds of things happening. Um, we know the Jews didn't like tax collectors. Every time they're mentioned in, in the New Testament, they're kind of lumped in with prostitutes and sinners. And so we know their, their feeling. It's because the, oftentimes the tax collectors were taking money from their own people to pay the Roman army who was oppressing their people. And these Jewish tax collectors were taking some off the top and saying, yeah, here's, here's the money, Rome. So like, there's a lot of issues when it, came to, when it came to taxes. And so Paul's command to pay taxes was actually a way to say to the Christians, listen, you need to lead the way. You need to... to to be above reproach, you need to not um, not give any give Rome any hint that you're going to be a rebellion like maybe some of these others that have raised up. So that could be a lot of history to why he would encourage them to pay the taxes. Two, uh, three further comments: the word vengeance um, or avenge. Actually, the word avenge in in uh, twelve nineteen. And 13.4, same word, basically. But in 12.19, he says, uh, basically, it denies the Christian right to enact vengeance. Okay? It says we have no right to enact vengeance, to, to avenge, that God will do that. But then in 13.4, it says God 
gives the rulers to right to use violence. Now, why would I say violence? What, what's a word in verse 4 that might be associated with violence? What do you see? Sword. So, so the question is, and this is kind of a little bit of the debate, why, why that word, Paul? And I think what it seems to be saying is, yeah, God can use those rulers to enact his, it's do his bidding at some level, okay? Um, so that's something we got to kind of wrestle with. How does this work? So why is it that the individual Christian can't, but yet these rulers can? And what if a Christian is in some sort of authority or some sort of rule or is, you know, so how does this work? And there's a lot of questions that come along with that. I'm not going to answer right now. Second one, submission, okay? And I, I misspoke earlier, but submission does not mean blind obedience or love. But it means something. The word literally means to place yourself under. And it refers to accepting your, 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 accepting your role, accepting kind of your place. Um, and and uh, we'll talk about that word later. Third thing is the first century. They would have heard this idea a lot differently than we do. Um, to, to the Romans, the Jewish and Christian God was nothing more than a menace to their society. You remember, they had lots of gods. So, so the God of the Bible or the God of the, the, the Hebrews was just one of the gods. And to them, it was just like, okay, yeah, sure, you're God. Um, and and they were, they, he was more of a, a, a menace. So, so when, when we hear things like the, authority, the authorities are God's servants, we think, wow, that says a lot about the, that says a lot about the authorities. That says a lot about the authorities. Because we, we've associated God with this high position. But when, when, when Romans would have heard that, they would have thought, wow, that says a lot about your God. Like you're saying a lot about your God. If you're saying that your God is somehow in charge of Caesar, that your God is somehow... Um, Using Caesar as your servant, that's, you're saying a lot about your God. And, and we, we kind of don't hear the same thing. Two other texts that say a similar instruction. Hebrews 13, verse 17, should be on the screen. says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls, as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And then 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17 says, submit, every hum- submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to, to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do, not, or who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God and honor the emperor. That's in the Bible. This is pretty clear what we're to do. But then it continues. And I want to have Chase come up and read Romans 8, 8 through um, 10. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law the commandments do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not covet and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment love your neighbor as yourself love does no wrong to a neighbor love therefore is the fulfillment of the law okay so it's almost like Paul is, is answering a question that he thinks they're asking. And the question that he thinks they might be asking is, how do we obey the laws of the land? How do we obey um, the rulers of this land when they're in, in their laws? And, and I think Paul's conclusion is, you obey God's law um, and, and, and you're covered. And God's law is summed up by love. And he, and he tells them, he tells them, what to owe or who they owe. they owe. They owe taxes, tolls, respect, and honor in verse 7. Okay, and then in verse 8, he says, the main thing you owe, though, okay, if you, if you owe nothing else, you owe this. 
which is love. And then he gives a list of some of the Ten Commandments. And it's mainly the bottom half, okay, the second half, minus the um, do not slander your neighbor one. I'm not exactly sure why he leaves that one out, but he he lists four of of the last five. And he's basically reiterating what Jesus said in Matthew 22 about the two greatest commands. So the, the law, especially the Ten Commandments, can be summed up in love God, which is the first five, and then love your neighbors yourself, which is the second five. And so Paul is, is just summarizing what Jesus has said in several different ways, but especially here. So you could, you could almost even look at Romans 13, 1-7 as, even though he's saying, He's describing how we love the world. We do that by by submitting to the authorities. But ultimately, he's saying, this is how we love God, by submitting to those who God's put in authority and by trusting His sovereignty and obeying Him and submitting to to the authorities that He established. And then in 8 through through 10, he continues with the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And like I said, you need to go back and listen to Drew's message last week about, about love. But Chase, I'm going to have you come up and read the rest of this. Read 11 through 14. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So, here he describes discerning the moment and walking in the light. So this word kairos, for time, Okay, the Bible uses different words for time. This particular one means the weight of a moment or opportunity. So it means more of an, uh, uh, like the opportunity is at hand here. And he says, knowing the time, basically, knowing the time <coughs> impacts your daily life. And so the, the kind of language he's using is, is like, like Easter talk. He's, he's describing salvation is near. In other words, the resurrection has happened. And, and with it, the sun comes. Both the, the big ball of gas and Jesus. Because when the sun comes, when daylight comes, there's hope. Because of what Jesus has done, and because of who you are, and because of how we are to live, we're, we're, we're not to live in darkness. We're to come into the light. We're to be children as light, to walk in the light. And actually, there's interesting history with, this, with these verses. Um, Augustine uh, was a man who lived in the 4th century. Uh, He lived in, uh, I believe, North Africa. And he was at a time in his life where he was really convicted about his sin. He was living a life of sin, especially sexual sin. He talks a lot about in his book, The City of God, or his confessions. And so he he, he's talking to a friend he's about his recent like conviction about his life and his sin. And he hears, he hears a boy or a girl off in the distance singing this, this little jingle that goes something like, pick it up and read it. Pick it up and read it. And he, and he hears that and he assumes that means he needs to pick up the Bible and open it and read it. And he opens a Bible and he turns to Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Which basically just says, let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing or, or drunkenness, not in sexual impurity or promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans to, desire, to, to gratify the desires of the flesh. And, and Augustine hears those words and, and thinks God is speaking directly to him. And he turns his life over to God and goes on to be probably next to Paul, probably one of the greatest influencers of the church from that point on. Um, Kind of a fascinating story. But this call to holiness, this last section, after after he kind of concludes with love, 
This last little section of 13 is a warning. It's saying, listen, the day is here. Dawn has approached. Jesus is coming back. And, and we need to live as children of light. We need to put on holiness, put on Christ, and walk in Him. So, let's take a little break, and then we'll come back and talk through this whole, non, this whole issue of um, authority. Here's what I want you to do. For uh, two or three minutes, I want you to turn with one or two people next to you, and I want you to read these verses, or you can look them up if you want. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, okay? It should be on the screen. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Um, you can look them up. So with one or two people next to you, talk about what these verses mean. Read them both carefully. Ready, go. For those of you who are listening, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to read the verses for you because you're probably driving. And I would not want you to be reading your phone while you're driving. That would be bad. Pay attention to the road. Obey all traffic signs and laws while I try to find Proverbs 26. Where is... There it is. Okay, Proverbs 26. Here's what it says. Verses 4 says, Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he will become wise in his own eyes. So verse 4 says, Don't answer a fool. Verse 5 says, Answer a fool. Verse 4 says, don't answer a fool because you'll, be, you'll become like him. Verse 5 says, answer a fool, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So the question is, why are these two opposite verses right next to each other? And that's what we're going to talk about. Very lively bunch. I can't tell if they're goofing off or actually working on the assignment. Okay. All right, so for those of you who are maybe reading these verses for the first time, okay? For the first like if this is the first time you've kind of read these verses, I want to hear what you think's going on here. Or if you haven't heard me talk about it in the last couple months. Because I did talk about these verses in a class earlier on this, this semester at, at the church. But, so, what's going on here? She's videoing me or taking a picture or something. What? Someone's talking smack. That's what you think's going on here? So, Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, when like talking to a fellow believer, like when you are con- like conversing about like your sin, like talking to them in a way that is just out of truth, rather than like speaking to them and encouraging them in their sin, because then you become a fool yourself. Like mm-hmm. you're encouraging them without thinking about it, like in their sin, rather than just like giving them the truth and like, or else like you'll become they'll become wise in whatever you're encouraging them in. Okay, kind of, maybe, a little. No, no, okay. The issue, do you see the issue? The issue is, the first one says, don't answer a fool. The second one says, answer a fool. Those are, those are two different things. It says, don't answer a fool according to his foolishness. And the second one says, answer a fool according to his foolishness. So, what's happening here? Yeah. Is it kind of like... That's close. I think that's close. So, so the Bible, th- this is a great example of, of how the Bible talks about applying truth. Okay? 
Because, see, we want, we want things to be black and white. We, we don't like this. We don't like this because which one do I listen to, God? Because those are two different things. Which one do I do? Just tell me which one. Remove one of them from the Bible so that I know which one to do. Right? We, 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 don't, like, um, we don't like gray areas. We like things to be clear. And then even when they're clear, like submit to the governing authorities, we go, yeah, but what if the governing authority is an idiot on Twitter? <laughs> then what? Because like, that changes everything, right? Because, okay, but what if the governing authority is like wanting to wipe out a whole race, okay? Like Hitler. So then, then we want to know, okay, then now what do I do, God? Just tell me what to do, because the just submitting to authority, I don't know how to apply that here. Right? And so this verse, these verses are a great reminder to me of something. We want things to be clear, I think for several reasons. We want them to be black and white because they're easier to obey. And, and, and obedience is a good thing, so we, they, it makes it easier to obey if it's black and white, clear, just tell me what to do. Um, because sometimes we make decisions based on a fear of making a mistake. And so we, we, we want it to be black and white so that we don't make a mistake. And we, we want it to be black and white because we believe if, if we obey, so, so this is how it goes. God, you know I want to obey you. And so why don't you just make it clear so that I'll do what you want me to do? Because then when I do what you want me to do, you're going to bless me. Because things are going to go well for me when I when I'm obedient, and I want things to go well for me. So why won't you just make it clear? See, I think we approach this issue of submitting to authority, especially in, in kind of this, this current um, climate with, with who to vote for and, and what do we do and, and how, do we, how do we live this out in our current time? How do we, how do we live this out in, on campus? Um, you have issues with police like, like the, the children that I'm hanging out with on Wednesdays. I mean, they, they, they have a very different understanding and, and, and probably experience than I do. And they see the news with, with different eyes around different, a different culture. And so their understanding of things is, is going to be influenced by that. So I think we, we approach things like, like this particular issue with lots of like, yeah, but what if questions. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how do we... How do we apply truth when it's not it's it's maybe clear but not clear what I'm supposed to do with that clear truth? And here's what I believe: I believe that wise people, and I think this is the point of this text, by the way, these verses, wise people apply the right truth in the right circumstances. Because the reality is, both of these are true. It just depends on the circumstance you're in. What's required here is discernment. That's what's, being, that's what's being taught. It takes discernment to know, do I answer or do I not answer? If I answer them, will it, will it maybe change them and turn them from being wise in their own eyes and being a fool? Or if I answer them, is it just going to make it worse? And then I'm going to get into something and I'll become just like them. I have to be able to discern that. And the Bible kind of expects me to. And I, in fact, in, 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 um, in Proverbs, and this kind of blows me away, earlier in January I got a chance to um, audit a class on Proverbs and um, taught by a, a old, an Old Testament professor. And I never really realized the first nine chapters of Proverbs, is it ten, nine or ten chapters of Proverbs, are like long sections of coherent thought. I, I just thought, for some reason, I thought all of Proverbs was just like these random wisdom sayings. They, they don't really relate to the others. Really, that's not the case for the first nine or ten chapters. And in those chapters, it talks about this, the woman wisdom, and it talks about a woman folly. Okay, Two different women. For most of the time, it talks about woman wisdom. And in the very end of, I think it's chapter 9. i got to look it up because now it's driving me nuts. I think it's chapter 9. It's, it talks about woman folly. But what it says about woman wisdom, yep, chapter 9. 
what it says about woman wisdom is that she calls out from the, um, from the city gates and from the, from the high places in the city. And, and in other words, you have to ignore her. See, I, I, I kind of thought that wisdom was something that you just, you had to like search in a haystack for to find the needle. You know, like you had to go find it and, and it'll, it'll be hard to define, but you got to find it. And, but the Bible doesn't seem to talk about wisdom that way. The Bible seems to talk about it like it's coming at you and so is woman folly. So wise things and foolish things both are coming at you and you have to ignore one and, and, and embrace the other. And so wisdom is, is kind of the, the, it's the ability to apply the right truth, the right understanding in the right circumstance. So take um, back to Romans 13. Look at verse 7. Because I think this is interesting, what it says about Romans, Romans or uh, about how to, how to apply this truth. Okay, now I can't even find Romans. This is bad. Thank you. <laughs> Romans 7 says, pay your obligations to everyone. And then he explains it. Taxes to those who owe taxes. Tolls to those who owe, to- owe tolls. Respect to those who owe res- you owe respect, and honor to those you honor. But so now, if you're like me and you're going, okay, that doesn't really tell me anything. I'm just supposed to pay taxes, pay tolls, respect and honor to who? And Paul says, I think Paul's saying, to the right people, in the right circumstances. So it, it kind of goes like this. So should I respect? Should I show respect to someone that I don't respect? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Just show respect to everyone? And Paul's saying, if, they, if they're in the right position, yes. But does that mean you have to all the time? No, not necessarily. Should I just give honor out like for free to anyone and everyone, even if they don't deserve it, Paul? Well, are they in a position to where they deserve the honor, then yes. And if they aren't an honorable person, then no. But if, if they're not an honorable person, but they're in a position of honor that, can, that somehow can reap havoc on your life, then yeah, you probably do. So like there's, there's wisdom and discernment. What about this tolls? And I think Paul would say, well, you pay toll, toll to those who own the road. You pay taxes to those who rule the land. So Paul doesn't seem to have a, um, a problem saying, yeah, your money isn't really, it's just money. Pay it. Jesus says, give it to who it belongs to. And, and, we, and we say, but yeah, but what about, like, it's not fair. Like, what about justice? And what about, and Paul says, yeah, those things are valuable too. And those things are worth fighting for. But I think the issue is, like, do what's, do what's right. Do what's deserved in the moment. And that takes wisdom. And, and, and the other issue is, like, God calls us to submit. Like, this is, this is one we can't get, get away from. My natural tendency in writing this, I really was, like, looking for a way to say, you don't really have to submit. Like, I would, there's something in me, and I think it's because of the, the environment that I'm in, the air that I breathe, okay, the culture that we live in, I want to free you from you having to submit to anyone. Like, even saying that just sounds archaic, almost. But the Bible doesn't give us an out on this. And, and so it says, Christian slaves are to submit to their masters. It says, um, prophets are to submit to other prophets. Christian wives to their husbands. Christians are to submit to established authorities. Christians are to submit to another. That's Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The church is to submit to Jesus. So every single one of us is called to submit. The the idea of placing yourself under. Every single one of us is called to place ourselves under. Why? Because back to wisdom, 
in, in, in Proverbs and Psalms and Job and Ecclesiastes, all of them have this phrase, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That the fear of the Lord is at the heart of wisdom. And I've been wrestling with that for several months. And, have, and, and, and kind of where I'm at with that right now is I'm wrestling with this fear. I think we're afraid of that word, fear. Um, but, but where I'm at right now is that the only natural and normal way to approach God and, and, and to live in light of who God is, is one of humility. And so fear is, is, is a, a sign of, of humbling yourself and being in awe of and, and paying respect to, to God. And so we're called to, all of us are called to submit. All of us are to place ourselves under. And it's a, it's, a, it's a position of humility that God calls us to live in. There's no escaping it. There's one section of Scripture that I didn't read earlier that I wanted to say for, for here because Paul does a beautiful job, not only talking about submitting to authority, but then he turns it, he talks about the gospel in a beautiful way. This is Titus 3, um, starting in verse 1. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey and to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that, that we had done, but, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. I love that. That's a beautiful picture of why we would submit and why we would show that, that kind of love to others is because of what Christ has done for us. So back to this question of, of, of authority. How do, we, how do we live out this submit to the governing authorities? And what if I find myself in a position or a place where I don't like what's happening? I, I want to give you a question I think is is a really good question. It's a really wise question to ask. I think it's even worth coming up with lists for. Here's a question, simple question. What can I do? What can I do? So, um, the reason why we get, I think we get tripped up on this, and we easily can kind of run back to guys like Hitler. By the way, Hitler, if he would have... So, look up Nero... When you get a chance, look up a guy named Domitian. Look up emperors like Nero and Domitian and just read about those guys. Like Hitler would have been a nice guy compared to some of these guys. Like, so this is the context in which Paul writes and says, submit to governing authorities. He's not talking about good rulers. He's talking about a very, very different world back then. And so, like... He's telling them, they don't, they don't have hardly any rights. They can't do a whole lot other than just they're at the mercy of the people around them and God. And so that their, their best move is to live at peace as much as possible, to be kind, to show compassion, to pay taxes, to, to respect the authority, to submit to... I mean, that this is their best option in order to live not just live a good life, but live. And so, you think about us, we got all kinds of options if we don't like the way things are going. Um, we can, if you have influence, you can influence. You can influence. That's what you can do. Well, how can I influence? Well, think of the ways that you can influence. Lots of ways. You can call someone. You can write someone. You can, you can go and protest you can you have free speech. You have all kinds of ways that you can influence. Okay, and I, I think I think 
what Paul would, 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 would be including in that is, yeah, you live in a world where that is allowed. And so that's a way for you to submit to the way things work by, by, by exercising your influence. You can fight for things. Now, there's, there's ways that you can fight that are good, and there's ways that you can fight that are not good, that are not wise, that are not helpful. You can vote. That's something you can do. In fact, if you are interested in Sunderbrook staff's kind of maybe position on how a Christian should vote, um, it was actually recorded about four years ago, well, four and a half years ago, sometime in the fall of 2016. Um, Jim and Drew and Ryan got in the studio, and, and uh, there's a couple episodes. It's, I think it's episode 22 and 23 <coughs> on uh, our staff podcast called Consider This. And I, it's a, they're each about 35 minutes long. Highly recommend it. Really, really good to help you think through, like, this is, this is what we, this is how we should think, this is what we should care about, this is the way we should vote. And let me tell you, they give room for both sides, red and blue. They don't really, they don't really tell you, n- none of them really tell you, actually, yeah, none of them, you guys don't tell what color you are or what side you're on. Um, you don't say anything about who you vote for, which is, which is great, but they, they, but they talk, the way they talk about it is really, really helpful and really healthy. So I'd definitely say go listen to that. But you can vote. You have a right to vote. You actually can elect things and elect people. Um, that's what you can do. And then Paul's make it pretty clear here. You can love. You can love your neighbor. You can care about people in the way Jesus did. So what about the other side of this question? What can you not do? Well, Paul's already told us you, you can't repay evil for evil. You can't curse those who are against you. You can't avoid paying what you owe to those you owe just because you don't like the way things are going. So there's things you can't do. And so I think it's helpful. It's a wise question to ask. What can I do? I don't like the way things are. What can I do? Or what can I not do? It's a helpful question. Really great example of this is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian who lived in Germany in the mid-1900s before the Nazi regime took over. He was a Christian. He was going to school. He was also considered himself a pacifist. He was against war, against fighting, against violence. Um, And then um, Hitler shows up, and all of a sudden, those, those ideologies were kind of met with a very real evil that existed and he goes into the ministry actually becomes a pastor he, he was an underground pastor uh, training up Christian leaders um, in, in, a, in like a seminary that was underground with like in hiding and then he became um, he became a spy in fact he became kind of a, a double spy so so he, re- he realized that he could have um, influence if he was acted like he was on their side, and so on the Nazi side. So he, even though he was an underground pastor, they didn't know this, he acted like he was one of them, and he got to, he had some, fr- some rights and some freedoms, he got to travel around, but in there is when he got kind of close intel because he was a part of a, in a, a group of men who were trying to assassinate Hitler. So he goes from pacifist to pastor to spy to assassin. And then if you guys know the movie or the story of Valkyrie, the bomb goes off, okay, and Hitler is saved by this giant leg on this huge wooden table. And when that happens, it, in fact, it wasn't the first bomb attempt. There were several bomb attempts. That, and you can, you can read about it in, in this book called Bonhoeffer by a guy named Eric Metaxas. Great book, great biology, or great what is it called? Biography. That's the word, <laughs> biography. Listen, biology is good too. There is biology there too. But several bomb attempts. This one finally is the one that closest worked. But with that, that woke up Hitler, and then he realized there's a group of there's people that are trying to kill me. So he he made it a priority to figure out who those people were. Bonhoeffer and one of his brothers was were were in, involved in this group, and all of them were sent to concentration camps. Um, I want to say a year before the war ended in which Bonhoeffer went, off to, went on to write, he was a prolific writer, he wrote um, several books, The Cost of Discipleship, 
um, and Life Together are probably his two famous ones. So he goes from pacifist to pastor to spy to assassin to prisoner. And then two weeks before the war ended, one of Hitler's last requests was to have all of those men executed that were part of that assassination group. And, and so he died two weeks before Hitler took his life and the war ended. And, and so you have a man who wrestled with what he should do, right? Like, what do I do? I don't, I don't agree. I think sitting, I think what I, I think he determined, and he, and, he, and he writes in his journal, and he writes all kinds of things to kind of describe his thought process, but he realizes that one thing I can't do is sit silently. I have to do something. And he did it under conviction of the Holy Spirit, I believe. And so there's lots of ways to live this out, right? There's lots of ways to live out this truth. But asking this question, what can I do? And, and, and seeking wisdom by applying the right truth in right circumstances is, I think, the goal. So let me pray, and then we'll be done. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it, sh- it sharpens us, it, it convicts us, it, it holds us to um, a standard of love that really, truly we need you in order to live out. So God, I pray that as we enter into this coming year, and as we think about and wrestle with um, the election coming up and politics and the way that impacts our world and the way we talk about it to others and the way we um, talk about it on Twitter, which is most of the time not helpful. God, I pray that we would learn new and better ways to talk about it, that we would learn new and better ways to offer um, loving, truthful perspective on how to influence our world. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.